Midterm elections in the United States could shift control of the House and Senate. How will this impact the next two years of the Biden administration? Executive editor of the Common Sense Society, Christopher Bedford, and former Democrat Congressman Dan Lipinski are here with analysis. And how might the Synod on Synodality affect Catholic schools and education? President of the Catholic Education Foundation, Father Peter Stravinskas, weighs in. And Heisman Trophy winner and New York Times bestselling author Tim Tebow shares his inspirational new book, Mission Possible, One Year Devotion, The World Over, begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. We have an important show for you tonight. If you'd like to comment, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Be nice. Lots to cover this evening. Let's begin. The Vatican's former auditor general and his deputy are suing the Holy See for damages. This after they allege they were unlawfully dismissed back in 2017 by Cardinal Angelo Beshu. The pair claimed they had begun to uncover irregularities in the Vatican's finances. Lead auditor Libero Milone recently spoke to the National Catholic Register's Ed Penton. The matter refers to the summer of 2017 when uh, I was uh, asked to resign together with my, um, one of my deputy auditors. We resigned uh, under um, uh, threat of uh, being arrested um, because they had delivered to us a decree, uh, what you would call a criminal decree, saying that we had uh, been spying and uh, we were accused of embezzlement. Now, neither of the two things ever happened. But evidently, these very much more sophisticated procedures we're uncovering things that somebody didn't want us to uncover. Yes. Milone and his deputy are suing the Vatican for nearly $10 million to clear their names. We'll continue to monitor this story. Midterm elections were held this week in the United States, and the much-talked-about Republican red wave never materialized. Consequently, the balance of power in Congress remains uncertain as votes continue to be counted. Here with analysis, I'm joined by columnist and contributor to The Federalist, Christopher Bedford, and former Democratic congressman and co-chair of the House Pro-Life Caucus, Daniel Lipinski. Thank you both for being here. Gentlemen, I want to start with the much-talked-about red wave of Republican wins that apparently didn't happen. Christopher, what did you make of the way these races turned out, especially given the economy and the polls we saw going into Election Day? The night started off extremely confusing, trying to make sense of it. Some of the races that I was watching, to understand if the Republicans are going to have a good night, a great night, or a fantastic night, which is the three categories I essentially put it into, were in, were in New York and also in Virginia. In New York, candidates started to do really well. The, House, the Republicans picked up a number of House seats. My, my analysis on that right now is that was based on the governor himself, Lee Zeldin, or the gov gubernatorial candidate, 
and how well he did. In Virginia, places that should have been easy Republican pickups never materialized. They didn't actually get it. The Democrats came mm -hmm. back to office, and that's when I knew that something was going to be pretty quirky this night. And now I'm sitting here as we're watching the votes come down in Nevada, and we're watching them come down in Arizona with, with both Masters, uh, Senate candidate Blake Masters and, and the Republican gubernatorial candidate bullish on their, on their chances of winning some of these votes. I'm starting to wonder, well, maybe we got this entire narrative wrong. If the Republicans end up with a 51 Senate before the runoff in Georgia, then they can still call that really good, even if they're even if they don't do make make the gains that they expected to make in the House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. Dan, your thoughts on how the Democrats managed to compete and prevail in many cases, and what does this say about the quality of candidates the Republicans put forth, in your opinion? Well, I think you put your finger on one of the, the problems Republicans had was in a number of these races, especially in Senate races, they had uh, low-quality candidates, uh, candidates that ran significantly behind other Republicans running statewide in their their states. I mean, Georgia is a uh, a good example mm -hmm. of that. But I think overall, it, it seems that uh, voters who were not happy with the with inflation, the economy. Uh, some of them still voted for Democrats. And the conclusion that I come to is that they just did not trust the Republicans. They didn't, they weren't very happy with the way things are going, but they weren't comfortable putting Republicans in, in some of these, some of these races. So look, I had predicted 25 to 30 seat pickup for Republicans in the House and one to three mm -hmm. in the Senate. It looks like it's going to be 10 or so, maybe 12 in, in the House, in the Senate, I don't know. To me, what I've heard, the Senate looks like it may be gone for Republicans. They, Democrats may pick up a seat, and Joe Manchin won't even be able to save the uh, the party from some of the crazy things that uh, uh, that they were they were yeah. trying to do. It will be a Republican House, uh, and that will put some break on, uh, on Biden. Uh, Chris, your take, we were together at a town hall before the uh, election, and uh, I mentioned my reticence given the GOP's lack of a national narrative. They really, I, I, you know, the, the line I've coined over the last few months is, let's go, Brandon, is not a governing strategy. They never put forward a coherent list of to-do items, policy objectives that could move their party and move voters. Is that part of what we're seeing? That's my personal opinion, although I've heard some strong takes otherwise. Uh, the takes against that are that Mitch McConnell and, and Kevin McCarthy allowed candidates to define themselves as opposed to making them have to answer for a Republican platform. Although I generally believe, and I think we've seen this ever since Newt Gingrich and before him, that people who actually have a policy, who have a campaign, who ha or have, have, a, have a list of things to do other than just like you said, Brandon Bad. Voters like that. Voters don't mm -hmm. just simply want to vote against Joe Biden. They want to vote for something. They don't simply. They're not. They're angry that there's inflation. There's angry that there's problems with the gas pumps. But what what was it, what were the policies that Republicans were putting forward to handle that? But a main thing that I think that leadership really messed up on in this, and we were, we've been critical of for the last couple of months, is disengaging from the culture yeah. war. Mitch McConnell thought that he could mm. disengage from a culture war when really the culture war at this point is a defensive battle. It's not. It's something that's being uh, fought in classrooms in locker. 
locker rooms in bathrooms. And in Virginia, which is basically by all accounts a blue state, somebody who's like a Mitt Romney light, like Glenn Youngkin, was still able to win by pushing independence, by engaging on that culture war. The Republican reticence to do so, I think, cost them a great deal. Yeah, well, that's a great segue to the Roe v. Wade uh, being overturned by the Supreme Court earlier this year. Uh, abortion really became a rallying cry for Democrats, so they leaned into the culture war, if you will, uh, Daniel. Uh, Kamala Harris even did an abortion event at Howard University on Election Eve. Was this the reason the red wave was essentially stopped, um, whipping up the Democratic base over abortion? Well, I think to some extent it, it helped. The other problem is uh, Republican candidates who said that they were pro-life, many of them uh, said, uh, I'm running for Congress, I'm pro-life, but I'm not going to do anything about abortion. Uh, I saw that happen in the district that I live in, the district that I thought about running as an independent in. The Republican candidate, mm -hmm. all the candidates actually, but the one who won the nomination said, I'm not going to do anything about abortion, though I'm pro-life thinking that it was going to inoculate him against Democratic attacks. It didn't. All it did was put him on the defensive rather than saying, hey, this is, I'm pro-life, this is what I want to do. But a lot of Republican mm -hmm. pro-life candidates just tried to run away from the issue and just let Democrats batter them on it. And I think that was a, a big mistake. Yeah. Chris, though the Democrats considered abortion the most important issue in exit polls, and the wider electorate uh, considered it the second most important, every pro-life governor who signed an abortion ban won handily. DeSantis by 19 points, Abbott by 11, uh, Mike DeWine in Ohio by 25 points, uh, Mark Gordon by 59 points, Kristi Noem 27, on and on. What's the message here? vis-a-vis -vis the pro-life position. I don't think, I think Republicans... And why were Republicans so reluctant to engage it? Republicans would be very quick to disengage on the abortion issue. It's important. But Catholics will be disappointed to realize that most of the country is not a, for a full ban on abortion. And Democrats will be uh, upset to know that most of, the, most of the country are definitely not against late term and therefore more restrictive things. Maybe what we've seen in Western Europe or what Lindsey Graham pushed with a 12- or a 15-week ban. Those are the things that push people. Now, single women, unmarried women without children, went more strongly for Democrats than they have ever previously. But that number is being mm -hmm. juiced up a little bit by pollsters or, or, or by pundits because that number is always broken for Democrats. It's always been something. And that number was higher, probably with something to do with the Dobbs uh, decision and some of that excitement. Broadly speaking, though, that abortion polled lower. And this kind of reminds me of classic Washington, D.C. The Republican Party has always been eager to try and kick out the social conservatives, literally since the 1960s, when in the 70s and 80s, when they were just at the beginning of this fusionism experiment. They've always tried to pin things on them and their own incompetence. The reality of the Democrats, much more, I think, than Dobbs, much more than even on inflation, where they put forward and where they succeeded was in early voting and ballot harvesting and things that the GOP has really been reticent to engage on in the past. They, they think it's morally wrong. They think it's not okay. And I think that they're probably right on that issue, but they're playing two different games of baseball. They're playing with, with wooden bats versus steel bats. The Democrats have taken this, just like Barack Obama used social media technology so well previously, and they've weaponized it and turned it into a, a very well-run operation. So Republicans are beginning Election Day, like we did, they did in Pennsylvania, a million votes behind already, or half a million votes behind. Hmm. That's a real game-changer in those kind of states.
Yeah. Dan, what do you make of that? I mean, the, you know, some of these states, the election starts in, in September, and the Democrats are already grinding up the machine and banking those votes. Republicans don't show up till Election Day. They've already lost the, the, the game. Well, I, I think uh, Republicans, even if they don't like the way that the rules are for, for voting, they need to understand that's the way that it's set up in the state. And they're going to have to get active and say, OK, we're going to have an active uh, game of trying to get Republicans to uh, to vote early, to do mail-in voting, because Democrats, uh, yeah, Dem Democrats do that. They have been doing mm -hmm. that. And it is a huge mistake not to understand the rules. And, you know, it's playing by the rules. If you don't like the rules, you can yeah. try to change them, but those are the rules. I want to get your takes on the way young people voted in this election. Gen Z turned out in 2022, this was the second highest turnout for a midterm in the last three decades by young people. Now, nationally, these young voters went to Democrats by 62 percent, voting for abortion, loan forgiveness, LGBT rights, recreational drugs, uh, free stuff, essentially, Christopher. Uh, what is your take on the way that these young people trended Democrat, and did the GOP fail to engage them? No, I think it's generally a shame that young people uh, don't have any civic engagement in the churches, often, often in the communities. They're more online and less personally connected with their neighborhoods. Homeownership is extremely down. Starting families, is, they're, they're very far behind in those sorts of things. Starting families and being part of the school system, they really roots you in a community. So I'm glad to see one aspect of civic engagement, which is voting come out. But when you're completely untethered mm -hmm. from responsibility, from family, from community, and from religion, well, then your vote is typically is, is going to be untethered from those things as well. And that's reflected mm -hmm. by a generation that voted for selfish things, like you said. The Republican Party can do outreach for them, but the failure is far before the politicians on that aspect. That's a failure of, mm -hmm. of how they were raised and, 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 the, and the options that they were given, the, the lies that were told to them about how they can wait forever to start a family, how they can pursue their own selfish career goals whenever they like and, and put those other things aside until so many of those young people really tragically find out years later that it's too late to have the life that their parents had. Uh, that's a failure from the community and it's a failure from, from all of us. Hmm. I was amazed, and I read some of the data this week, that Gen Z, they, they uh, don't own cars, and the majority of them live with their parents still. So it's, it's an interesting dynamic here of why they would decide to vote that way. But, uh, Dan, maybe they don't really care about the declining U.S. economy uh, or the U.S. decline because they're still living in their same room and playing all the games they want in the basement at home. It's a, our it's our failure uh, to reach out to young people. It's the failure of the Catholic Church. It's the failure of individual Catholics. The community used to you know, do a whole lot more. The church did a whole lot more. You know, young people are very disconnected, much more disconnected from the church mm -hmm. now than than they used to be. And so the church needs to do more. Jennifer Aniston just gave an interview 
uh, that I think every young yeah. person ought to read. It's absolutely heartbreaking. She's one of the most beautiful women in the mm. world. She had it all. She had money. And she said that she said in this interview that she would trade all of that just to have the chance to have a family. And she regretted that she believed the lies that people told her, that she could put it off, she could have everything, she could have it all, and a family would just come along someday. And it's a heartbreaking interview. And that lie is not just told to famous people in Hollywood. That lie is told in all mm. of our schools and parents need to actively counteract that. Yeah, you're right. That was a very revealing and sad piece. Uh, I want to talk a bit about one of the most, I guess, inexplicable races in the country this week. I mean, after the dead guy that was elected in Pennsylvania, the Senate race there. Uh, as you know, Democrat John Fetterman suffered a serious stroke. Uh, he seems ill-equipped to handle being a U.S. senator, as his performance against Dr. Mehmet Oz during that debate plainly showed. Here's what Fetterman had to say on election night. I'm proud of what we ran on, protecting a woman's right to choose, raising our minimum wage, fighting the union way of life, standing up to corporate greed, and standing up for our democracy. Uh, Dan, I'm going to start with you. Your thoughts on this victory? and. Um, it is, it is an odd thing to see somebody who's obviously recovering from a stroke getting elected handily in a state like Pennsylvania, a bellwether state. Well, first, I think part of it is uh, there's an expectation he's going to, to get better. Um, I, I, the debate performance was awful. It, it, I felt bad that he was put out there in, in that situation. Uh, I think the big problem... Well, other than that, though, Fetterman, let me say, Fetterman was not a threatening-looking candidate. He's a, he's a guy in the hoodie. He looked like uh, the, a, a guy that you, you would find uh, anywhere out in Pennsylvania. My, uh, I'm, a, I'm a Pennsylvanian by marriage. And, and he, you know, he looked completely in place there. Where Dr. Oz from New Jersey, he, he was not... He wasn't really a good candidate. And, and I think you never mm -hmm. you can never forget that some people just vote on who they feel more comfortable with, who who they think is uh looks more like a regular guy. And I think Fetterman had that also mm -hmm. going for him. So it didn't completely surprise me uh, what happened there. Although that debate performance was was absolutely, absolutely yeah. awful. Uh Chris, it, it looked like uh, voters just put aside his fitness to serve or that question. And uh, I mean, his ideology just swamping questions of competency at this point. Yeah, I think uh, the, the Catholic political observer Adrian Vermeule said the simplest explanation for a lot of this is that there is a, a concentrated group of American voters that will vote for left wing liberalism no matter the consequences, no matter how they're reaping it. They feel a religious uh, fervor for that. But Oz is, an, is a warning sign to the Republican Party in general, which is that th there's a lot of folks who are trying to harness what Donald Trump had, that blue-collar populist appeal. Ron DeSantis is trying to do it. Mm -hmm. Dr. Oz is trying to do it. But th that wasn't simply engaging on the culture wars, which Dr. Oz largely avoided. It it's more than that. It's populist economics. It's, it's to the left of the Art Laffers mm -hmm. and they may be traditional Reagan GOP economics. That's one of the things that helped Donald Trump win the Rust Belt, places like Pennsylvania. That's one of the things that appealed 
to that strange uh, cohort that's left in mm. Pennsylvania of, of pro-life Democrats, one of the last states that really has them. Those sorts of things get to mm. them. Dr. Oz failed to deliver on that. And also, yeah. it's a real example of the early voting machine the Democrats have built, where hundreds of thousands yep. of ballots were cast before anyone saw a debate. Republicans were counting in that debate to show that their candidate was the best person, but people had already voted. Yeah. In Florida, Republicans won big. Uh, Marco Rubio over Val Demings. Uh, Republicans took the majority of the House seats. And incumbent Ron DeSantis won huge over Democrat challenger Charlie Crist. DeSantis said this on election night. We have embraced freedom. We have maintained law and order. We have protected the rights of parents. We have respected our taxpayers. And we reject woke ideology. Chris, what, what have Republicans been doing in states like Florida that bring this kind of victory? Uh, all of the right policies. Ron DeSantis was someone who stood up against the expert class during COVID. You had Anthony Fauci and everyone else saying he was going to kill everyone and if, he, if he tried to let them go to football games or celebrate Christmas. And it really was the tale of two cities. I'm from Boston. I live in D.C. I got to visit my, my parents down in Florida. And there was one place where children weren't allowed outside. They weren't allowed to trick-or-treat. When Christmas came around, families weren't gathering. And in 2020, uh, at the end of 2020 in Florida, there were children sitting on Santa's lap. And the elderly, some of them wearing masks, dancing in the streets. There was a perfect exhibit of the differences between the state's uh, policies and how it broke down this idea that COVID was the same everywhere. No, it's being treated very differently in Florida than it is in California. Yeah. That also caused a massive influx of voters who were willing to move to Florida to go down there. Folks mm. who maybe had looked at it as backwards or hot or swampy now looked at it as a new frontier of freedom. I know many of my neighbors left Capitol Hill and moved down to Florida, and I'm envious of all of them. That sort of thing, that kind of courage, uh, those are the things that are winning for DeSantis. Daniel, what's the message for Democrats this cycle? I mean, you saw the DeSantis victory. Uh, Democrat Stacey Abrams lost in Georgia. Beto O'Rourke lost his bid for governor again. The president says uh, they should change nothing, that everything's fine. People just need to learn what he's already done. Is that the right tag? Uh, I think there's a, a, a terrible uh, uh, message from, from president because... Look, uh, seven out of ten American voters think the country is going in the, in the wrong direction. And if they hear President Biden saying that uh, he's not going to change anything, uh, I think that uh, bodes ill for him. Look, I, I think that this election may wind up working out very well for Republicans in the sense that Joe Biden, uh, unless he decides that he's incapable of doing it, he's going to be the Democrats' nominee. There's a lot of talk that uh, maybe he wouldn't. Maybe he would step aside uh, mm -hmm. because of his age. But I think he will be the nominee. I think Donald Trump has uh, been delivered a blow. Um, uh, some Republicans are talking about, you know, Trump should not be the candidate. You know, perhaps DeSantis will, will, will be the candidate. I, I think that uh, it, this was a terrible election for Republicans, but it may have set up 2024 to be a much better election for them. And, and Democrats uh, shouldn't just sit back and say, well, everything's fine. Uh, because yeah. I don't think the voters are very happy with either party right now. Mm. Uh, Chris, I'll give you the last word. Um, your take on, is this a setup for 2024? The Democrats have a lot more seats they'll be defending uh, in that cycle. And is this the end of Donald Trump? 
if they had gotten to, if Republicans had gotten to 53 uh, Senate seats or something like that, then they would have put a 60 Senate majority in play for the next election with the right candidate. Uh, so this was a this was not a great night for that. But the Democrats are still going to be on a massive defense for multiple extremely vulnerable candidates in two years. If Republicans are able to squeeze by and take the House, just, just a few votes, that's going to empower the Freedom Caucus and some of the more conservative members of the Republican Party, because Kevin McCarthy is going to have to listen to them. He's basically going to have to build a coalition government with them to get their go-ahead on anything, because the Democrats won't side with mm. them on anything. Donald Trump, I think that in D.C. there's a lot of wishful thinking that this was going to be a bad night for him. I know that he was personally jarred by the whole evening. But if this, if this goes differently in Nevada and in Arizona, that narrative will, will be weakened. Uh, and Donald Trump, regardless, regardless of what the political pundits think and a lot of the politicians and want uh, regarding Donald Trump, the voters will be in charge. And he still packs a rally like no other politician can. So I wouldn't count him out of anything. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll leave it there. Christopher Bedford, Congressman Dan Lipinski, thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Tim Tebow is coming up later in the show, but I am so excited to share a new collaboration with you. Country singer and songwriter Tasha Layton was inspired by my new book, The Wise Men Who Found Christmas, and she recorded a new single, an original take on We Three Kings. It's subtitled, We Magi of Orient Are. The incredible new video even features Diane LaFayer's gorgeous artwork from the book. Here's a little taste. You can see the entire video at my website or on my Twitter and Facebook accounts. And Tasha Layton is touring the country on the K-Love Christmas Tour. And speaking of the wise men who found Christmas, it's now available in bookstores everywhere, online. It's at the top of Amazon's Christmas releases. This book for the whole family makes a great gift, and it reminds us that the search for truth is often the most incredible adventure of all. This Saturday, I will be home in Metairie, Louisiana, at the Barnes & Noble on November 12th at 2 p.m. Then in Mesa, Arizona, at Barnes & Noble, Saturday, November 19th. And Dallas, Texas, also at a Barnes & Noble on Sunday, November 20th. Go to RaymondArroyo.com. All the times and dates are there. And, of course, the book is also available at the EWTN catalog and wherever books are sold. <laughs> 
He's a two-time college football national champion. He won the Heisman Trophy in 2007 while playing for the University of Florida. He's also been a first-round NFL draft pick, ESPN contributor, a former professional baseball player. What hasn't he done? Well, five-time New York Times bestseller books. Uh, and he joins us tonight with an inspirational new book, Mission Possible, one-year devotional. Please welcome Tim Tebow to the program. Tim, thanks for being here. In a recent Instagram post, you admit to being a people pleaser and that you had to change your mindset from pleasing people to earning their respect to grow yeah. closer to God and bring others closer to him. And you attribute this quote by Winston Churchill with helping you see the need for change. If you have enemies, good. It means you stood for something at least once in your life. How did that quote change you and how you go about bringing others closer to God? Wow, Raymond, that's a, a good question. You did some research in your homework. So um, I, I, by you nature, bet. I am such a people pleaser, man. I wanted to, I want to be friends. I would want people to like me. I still want people to like me. It's my nature. I, I'm just not someone that um, easily, I, I'm not bold like my dad is naturally. And so I, I just especially remember getting to college and on that kind of next level, that platform of of scrutiny and um, and fame somewhat, but just you have all these people, and I just remember getting scrutinized on another level, and I just remember going home and saying to Dad, like, Dad, man, if if they if these people would get to know me, Dad, I think they would like mm -hmm. me, and and I just remember my dad looks at me and he said, Timmy, they probably would if they really got to know you because you are likable, but unfortunately, mm -hmm. Timmy, some people. They won't even want to take the time to get to know you and they don't want to actually like you. And it was at a time when I was also reading uh, about Winston Churchill. And that's where I, I, I saw that quote and I was impacted by it yeah. because I was thinking, how in the world, Raymond, could it be good to have enemies? Like, do, don't we want to try to be friends with everyone? And, and it was kind of understanding the difference between being friends, being friendly, being liked versus being mm -hmm. respected. And what I would come to kind of understand about Winston Churchill is because he stood for something, a lot of people didn't like him because they couldn't see what he saw. They didn't believe what he believed. And even the Allies thought he was going to lose the war for the Allies. And if you're on the other side, you hated him because he was your enemy. But right. but they didn't understand it. But one day they came to respect him for it. And now we, we talk about Winston Churchill and, and most people are like, wow, you know, it's incredible what he's done, what he stood for, all of his writings, all his beliefs. And, and it was because he was willing to stand for something when a lot of other people um, weren't willing to. I was also, um, you know, in that time studying the scriptures and reading John 16, 33, which is one of my favorite verses. And it's Jesus talking to his disciples the night before he goes to the cross. And he looks at them, and he says, for in me, you have peace in the world. You will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome mm. the world. And, and it was something that was really impactful to me at that same time. It was saying, oh my gosh, like really what I was looking for was peace in relationships because I'm a people pleaser when I need to be looking for peace in my relationship with Christ and that I will mm. have trial and tribulations. And that doesn't mean we're not trying to be friends or friendly and, and love everyone. It just means that's not right. where we find our peace. We find it in him. 
and um, and and that was a big transition for me of of still trying to love people, but more so instead of trying to earn likes, it was earn respect. Tim, you were born in the Philippines to missionary parents. How did they inspire you to want to share your faith? Because they're my biggest role models. Um, my mom being someone who is very rarely ever growing up that I hear her say a bad word about anyone. And she would always tell us, um, what is desirable in a man is his kindness. Um, going back to scripture, and then and uh, she would sing to us and sing verses to us, and that just made a massive impact. And my dad probably being my greatest hero because not what he he said to us, but what he showed us in his life of giving the majority of his adult life to helping people that could never help him and and never do anything for him. And then his courage and his conviction and his urgency to do it, to get to as many hurting people, to help as many people as possible, to take the hard steps, to to be able to go places very few would go, to, um, you know, be able to um, you know, it's how we, it's how I got involved also in the, the fight against human trafficking is to be able to, you know, my, my dad in an underground pastor's conference in remote country bought four girls that were being auctioned off to be able to, to buy them, to set them free, right? Like that's the, mm. the hero that my dad has been to me. And to be able to see that, that love isn't just a feeling and it's not just, a, um, uh, it's not just, you know, these butterflies we get, but the greatest form of love is a choice to choose the best interest of another person and act on their behalf. It's what Jesus did for us. It's what I've seen my dad do for so many people. It's what too many times I've failed at, but I want to get better, that I want to choose people's best interests and act on their behalf. And that's why he's my hero. Tim, you attribute your life's purpose to when you were a 15-year-old boy in the jungle of the Philippines. And tell me what happened, who you met there that changed your life. I met a young boy named Sherwin who was born with his feet on backwards. And because he was born that way, his village viewed him as cursed, as less than, as insignificant. Mm. And he was treated as a throwaway. Um, but I fell in love with that boy, and I knew... Um, that he wasn't a throwaway to God. And I so felt on my heart that God was pricking my heart to say, he better not be a throwaway to you, Timmy, because he's not a throwaway to me. And I knew that day that I love sports. I love competing. I love trying to be the best I could be. But it's not what I was supposed to do with my life. What I was supposed to do with my life was to fight for boys and girls around the world mm. like him that are being viewed as less than because they're not to God. And I know that they better not be to me. And there are so many people mm. around the world that still to this day, as we are having this conversation, still viewed as less than, as insignificant. And there are throwaways. And we have to do a better job of getting to every single one of them because they have great worth. They have great value to God and they better have it to us. Tim, in 2010, you created the Tim Tebow Foundation, which uh, focuses on really several ministries, people with special needs, orphan care, uh, children with profound medical needs, human trafficking victims, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, you're about to build a camp for children in the Poconos, 3,000 acres of land. What inspired you to start the foundation, and, and where is it now? Where do you see it going? 
Well, the the foundation was really inspired by that boy in the Philippines. And when I graduated from Florida, mm-hmm. it's one of the first things we did. Um, and I wrote the mission statement to bring faith, hope, and love to those needing a brighter day in their darkest hour of need. And I wrote that literally just thinking about Sherwin, where he was in his life and what he needed is he was in the darkest hour of need and he needed people to love him enough to bring faith, hope, and love to him, to his situation. And that is our heart. That is our heart's cry to get to as many places mm-hmm. as we can around the world. We're so grateful that God has opened doors for us to now be in over 70 countries around the world. Um, but we have to get farther into all those countries, into more countries to get to every single hurting person. And, and what you're referring to with, mm-hmm. with Rising Light Ridge is the, the camp in the Poconos that we have um, already serving kids, but we're still, we broke ground and we're building the camp out. But while we're building it, we're still serving in the meantime. And, and really that camp is called Rising Light Ridge. And it is a place where we want everybody to find belonging. We want everybody to be loved, to be served, to be cared for, to know their worth and their value. That's why we call it a place of belongings, because everybody belongs in the family of God. And we want to be able to share that. And we want people to know that. And, mm. and we want to be able to serve people with special needs. We want to be able to serve people who haven't had the chances before. We want to be able to serve people um, who who come from um, from harder areas, from don't have as many opportunities. We want to be able to serve people who have been in one of the greatest evils in the world and in, um, in, in trapped in that the terrible place of human trafficking. We want to be able to serve all these people. So um, that is our heart. Uh, the the land was was given to us, and now it is it, it is our heart to be able to give it to those that that are hurting, so that they can find joy, they can find hope, they can mm. find peace, and they can find restoration. Tim, before we run out of time, I have to get to your new book, uh, Mission Possible, one-year devotional. Uh, in a recent video you posted on social media, you asked people if they're committed to reading the Bible as they are to drinking a cup of coffee each morning. And you point out that it takes just that time, the time it takes to brew a coffee, you could read several reflections in your book. What do you find are the biggest obstacles keeping people from making that commitment each day? I think it's our mindset. I think it's the consistency. I think it's all the things that are thrown at us every day. I mean, Raymond, let's just be honest. How many Mondays have I woke up in my life and I've got caught up in all the different things that have been thrown at me, the busyness of life, the um, the clutter of life, the things I feel like I got to get to. And um, you, even though I'm someone that... I, I've I've been taught the truth and I know it. I still let things get in the way. And so it's encouraging people. Yeah. Let's not let things get in the way. Let's start with the, a mission mindset. Let's get into God's Word. And that's why every day we start with um, with portions of Scripture, and then we try to make it practical, and then we try to encourage them a- along the way. Um, but, but just for two to five minutes, if we could just start our day you know, in God's Word, and then also with encouraging stories, well, we can frame our mindset to be prepared for that day, because in that day, we can get caught up in so many distractions, and that's been true in my life so many days. I've just been caught up with all the things I have to do rather than starting it with the right framework, with the right mindset in God's Word, with the right encouragement, and the right challenges as well. Is that something we also want to challenge people, you know, to to get uncomfortable, to give a little little bit more, to care a little bit more, to pray a little bit more, to serve a little bit more. And then we also really, really, really want to encourage people because Raymond, we all know this. Life can be hard. It can have disappointments. It can have pain. It can have frustrations. And so we want to be able to encourage people. You know what encouragement means? It means to give support, confidence, or hope to. And when people pick this up, Mm. I, I hope and I pray that they, they feel supported in God's word and God's promises and God's love them. I 
I hope that they have hope and, and I hope that they have confidence mm. in, in, in who they were created to be and how much God loves them and how he has a special, special plan and purpose for their life. And Tim, we should tell people uh, there's usually a Bible quote, uh, a reflection, and of course, then it's some of your insights, sometimes using sports analogies or things that happened in your life, and then usually a series of questions to kind of jumpstart the day. Why did you decide to, to use that form to create this well, devotional? Because I think it's a lot of different ways that we can learn from and be impacted. I think sometimes um, when we give people thoughts on reflections, um, first of all, it's always important to start with Scripture because that's God's Word. It's His promises. It's His love letter to mm -hmm. us. And it's always the right place to start. And then, you know, coming up with some different thought-provoking questions. And and I even, um, in 31 of these devotionals, um, they're, they're written by other people that are heroes of mine, that some of them are parents who have lost their children to to diseases. Some of them are kids with life-threatening illnesses. One of them is a survivor of human trafficking, and I wanted the world to be able to hear some of their story because I also think that, that they're just inspirations to me, and I think they'll be inspirations to so many people, but it's also how in those tough situations, how God has used their pain um, to turn it into purpose and how God has used their pain because they've given it to Him to, to use it for good and how all of us have gone through hard times, but, but our God is a big God that is also sovereign that can use all of those things um, together um, for good to those that love him. Okay, Tim, I've saved the most difficult question for last. You titled <laughs> this devotional after your book, Mission Possible, which was about creating a life that counts. Um, tell us, before we run out of time, how do you discern what God is calling you and what your mission in life is? How does one figure that out? That's really good. Well, first, I think it starts by knowing that you have one, knowing that you were created on purpose for a purpose. It's understanding that God of this universe really does have a purpose for all of us. What does even purpose mean? The reason we were created, the reason we exist. You could also say mission, a task or a job someone has been given to do. That's why we titled it Mission Possible. What is possible means? It means to be able. And I believe every single one of us has a purpose and a mission, and we are able to accomplish it. How do we know that? What? How, how do we know what it is? Well, I think in the macro, we all have the same. And it's to love the Lord your God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But in the micro, I think we all have different ones. How do we live that out? Well, that's really hard. You're going to see a lot of different people talk about it to try to figure out, try to understand it. But I want to encourage people to look at it this way. What have your eyes been opened to and what has your heart been pricked for? And, and in those moments in your life, we talked about when I had the chance to meet Sherwin, right? That day, my eyes were open to something I hadn't seen and my heart was pricked to do something about it. When we have those moments, when we have those chances, let's step into it. Even if we get uncomfortable, even if we're not sure, even if we don't have the, all the answers, that's okay. Let's dive into it because even whether that is your, your, your in purpose or not, I also believe that it can help lead you to wherever we're supposed to go next. But I would also encourage people, you know, God can do anything that he wants. But I don't usually see a lot of people that their life's getting impacted just by watching, you know, two, three, four seasons of the latest Netflix shows or just scrolling. <laughs> and so why God can use that yeah. to impact people, I don't see it a lot. But I do see when people are willing to step outside of their comfort zone a little bit, 
and to, to care, to serve, to help in places, how he can use that so much in our life to, to grow us, to let us see the next thing we're supposed to do. And he can use Netflix, but man, I don't know that I, I see him doing that with a lot of people. And, you know, maybe if we just put that down a little bit and, and I'm guilty of it too. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's fun for me and my wife to watch our favorite show, but every now and then we just need to put it down and see, okay, hey, maybe what's the next greatest way we can go serve? Well, I I love that you're encouraging people to be spiritually watchful. You know, I I just wrote a book on the wise men, and they were watching. They were looking beyond their earthly experience to something else and then to act on that. And that's really what this devotional is about. Mission Possible, one-year devotional, 365 days of inspiration for pursuing your God-given purpose by Tim Tebow is available at bookstores everywhere and online. Tim, thank you so much for being here. We'll do this in person sometime soon. I love it. Raymond, thanks for all the the research and the questions. Man, you did your homework. I love it. That was fun, man. Well, thank my producer, too. We We try to respect our guests enough to raise the bar. So thank you, Tim. I love it. Appreciate you, man. Thank you. There has been an enrollment increase in Catholic primary and secondary schools across the U.S. since COVID, the largest increase in 50 years. Yet there was barely a mention of Catholic education in those diocesan reports gathered for the Synod on Synodality, and therefore none in the working document of the Synod's continental stage. Joining me now to discuss this and much more, founder and superior of the Priestly Society of St. John Henry Cardinal Newman and president of the Catholic Education Foundation, Father Peter Stravinskas. Thank you for being here. Father Peter, there were barely any mentions of Catholic education in those diocesan synodal surveys that went to Rome. Does that surprise you at all? Well, it doesn't because very often, as you well know, Raymond, the middle management that runs most dioceses have an agenda which is often not in sync with either the bishop or the normal people. And so, you know, they have all these weird ideas about things and they're not in touch with people at the grassroots. But we all know that, as you've indicated, Catholic school enrollment is, is booming, really amazingly so, uh, and thank God. And uh, it didn't merit a mention. Uh, and I, I painfully went through all of those regional reports. And I think I found only th- three or four of them out of the 15 that mentioned Catholic schools at all. And in those cases, yeah. it was a one or two liner only. Well, in the, an article you wrote for the Catholic thing, you pointed out that um, of the people who have attended Catholic schools, we'll put this on the screen, millennial Catholics who attended Catholic schools are seven times more likely to attend weekly mass than millennial adults who attended public schools. In 2015, some 51 percent of those ordained to the priesthood attended Catholic grade school and 43 percent attended a Catholic high school. Men who have attended a Catholic secondary school are more than six times as likely to consider a vocation, and women who have attended a Catholic primary school are three times as likely to consider being a religious sister. Now, given those statistics, should the bishops of the U.S. be doing more to promote Catholic education, especially as we've seen the number of vocations to the priesthood and religious life dwindling, Father, over the past few decades? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, this is the goose that laid the golden egg. And uh, and there's a great irony in this. When we started the adventure 
of Catholic sec uh, primary and secondary schools in the 19th century. Uh, the bishops wanted the schools and the lay people didn't. Uh, the lay people were so opposed to it that bishops had to threaten excommunication for not using the schools. And very often today, it's the exact reverse, that in many, many places, unfortunately, it's the clergy that don't want the schools and the laity that do. Uh, so, I mean, there are parishes that have uh, 2,000, uh, 3,000 kids in CCD. They don't have a school. And there's been no pressure put on pastors in those places to, to open a school. Father, earlier this year, the Catholic or National Catholic Education Association reported nationwide enrollment in Catholic schools increased by 62,000 to about 1.6 million students, marking the first increase in two decades and the largest jump recorded in the last five decades uh, of 3.8 percent. Much of this increase was owing to children fleeing those closed public schools while the Catholic ones were open during COVID. Do you think those schools will continue to see that increase in enrollment? Uh, well, it's interesting that, <clears throat> as a matter of fact, the people that came for, let's say, less than noble reasons uh, have actually stayed. And anecdotal evidence mm. indicates that uh, parents said of these people who came in, uh, number one, we didn't realize how cheap the Catholic schools really were. And on average, a Catholic grammar school in the country is $5,000. Uh, number two, uh, we never knew what we were missing. And they talk about the mm. fact that having their child or children in a Catholic school has changed the culture of their homes even. Uh, pastors have indicated that these children that came into the schools during COVID, uh, number one, parishes had to play sacramental catch-up ball with them, either missing first penance or first communion, to convalidate marriages of people who were not married in the church. And it's the old principle, get the kids, you get the parents. Uh, on Tuesday, Father, uh, speaking at the COP27 meeting on climate change in Egypt, the Vatican Secretary of State, Cardinal Pietro Parolin, said something about the Vatican's commitment to climate change. I want to play this for you. The Vatican City-State is committed to reducing net emissions to zero before 2050. The Holy See is dedicated to promoting education in integral ecology. Education in integral ecology. Is this the education that you think are going to draw students and parents? Uh, well, no. And what's interesting, there was a document that came from the uh, then Congregation for Catholic Education about six months ago. Uh, and as you know, Raymond, we all sort of hold our breaths when we hear there's a new document from the Vatican the past few years. Uh, but to my absolute astonishment, it's the best document on Catholic education that, uh, that has come out of the Holy See in 50 years. And it's talking about Catholic identity and what needs to be done and the presence uh, and involvement of the bishop and the pastors and hiring policies for teachers and so forth. It's a superb document. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's what we're talking about in integral Catholic education. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. No, that I, I, I'm familiar with that document. You're right. It is a superb document. I want to bring something to your attention, though, here, uh, talking about Catholic identity and, if you will, the Catholic brand as you, as you go out to try to bring students into a school setting. Uh, during an in-flight press conference on Sunday, Pope Francis mentioned the recent appointment of an abortion-supporting atheist economist. Her name is Mariana Musicato. Um, he appointed her to the Pontifical Academy for Life, and he had this to say. And now I put on the family council Musicato, who is a great economist from the United States, to give a little more humanity to this, end quote. Father Peter, your reaction, what does that say to Catholics around the world about not only the Vatican's position on life, but again, the Catholic branding, the Catholic sense of identity? Well, it's, it's absurd. And uh, <clears throat> can you imagine uh, Yeshiva University, for example, in order to have a diversity of opinion, uh, brings a neo-Nazi onto their board? Uh, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. As though there aren't uh, Catholics in good standing with the Church, who are also good economists, that could—anything that good she has to offer could easily be offered by somebody else without creating the, the confusion and, frankly, the scandal of having somebody like that mm. on a pontifical council. Mm. Mm. This synod on synodality has been billed as a listening synod, Father. Uh, so far, the synod reports and the working document suggest a widespread discontent with established church teaching. Uh, there's a focus on LGBTQ rights, ordination of women, and so on. What effect does all this— um, I guess reconsideration have on young people in Catholic schools who are really looking, I think, for formation, especially in high school and at the university level? Well, I, I, I would say the good news in all of this is, thank God, 90 percent of this never filters down to normal people. Uh, nobody <laughs> even knows. I mean, that's why the Wait a minute. Are you saying these... I'm not normal, Father? <laughs> <laughs> Raymond, we know each other too long. <laughs> uh, but, you know, people in the pews are not interested in any of that kind of nonsense. And, uh, and that's mm. a saving grace in the whole thing. Uh, that's why the participation uh, in the whole synodal process has been such a bust. Uh, you know, less than 1% of, of Catholics were involved at any level. And uh, so, no, I don't see it having any kind of uh, uh, impact on Catholic education, certainly not at the elementary and secondary levels. And unfortunately, as we all know, at the college level, 90 percent of the Catholic colleges couldn't pass muster for being Catholic. You know, the Cardinal Newman Society has, what, 21 or 23 colleges that are really authentically Catholic. That's that's a sad mm -hmm. situation in itself. And, you know, poor uh, John Paul's uh, document ex corde ecclesiae was dead on arrival the day it was issued uh, and taken up in the United yeah. States. But uh, at, at the uh, grassroots, no, I don't see people interested in that. I always, I'm a great believer in what I call niche marketing. And for a Catholic elementary or secondary school, there are two niches as far as I'm concerned. One, strong, authentic Catholic identity. And secondly, uh, superior academics. If you've got those two going, you've got a winning combination. Uh, Father, I'm glad you brought that up. What is the biggest challenge 
to Catholic identity today when you look at Catholic primary and secondary schools? Well, <clears throat> our kids don't live in a bubble. And, you know, we can do only so much in a six-hour day. I mean, we do a lot, uh, but, you know, there are 18 other hours <laughs> uh, in the day that they're influenced by by, tele, by uh, television, by videos, by the internet and uh, social media. And so a lot of what we have to do is a mop-up operation. Uh, and when I do teacher workshops, I say, you know, you have to know what the kids are, are watching and listening to so that you can do damage control. And also to give young people uh, the, the tools to be uh, discriminating in their judgments about what they should be watching and participating in. Uh, and, mm. you know, when I, I taught at the university yeah. level, it was interesting that I never had a girl who had come from a Catholic high school who spoke in favor of abortion in the classroom. I don't know what you know her personal opinion may have been. Conversely, I never had a girl who had gone to the government grade schools or high schools who was anything but a, a virulent, vocal proponent of abortion. Uh, even screaming at me in the classroom. Uh, so those are, are, the, are the differences that you see, and, and they're significant. And, you know, Raymond, you and I have been going to the pro-life march for, for decades now, and, and who's there? It's the kids from, from Catholic schools. And uh, so obviously we're doing something right. Uh, can we be doing more? Absolutely, no question about it. And I think the next big hurdle, we created a pro-life generation through our schools. That's that's clear. But the next hurdle that I think we have to overcome is all of this gender lunacy that's going on. Because again, kids are picking this up, it's in the air. And so we're gonna have to give them uh, the, the proper explanation for human sexuality and also to, to make sure that they're not sucked into some of these very, very problematic theories. Father, this past summer, uh, the Catholic Education Foundation, which you are president of, hosted its eighth annual seminar on the role of priests in today's Catholic schools. How important are the clergy in the vitality and the success of these parochial schools and Catholic high schools, by the way? Essential, absolutely essential. Every study has demonstrated that a Catholic school uh, rises or falls on the involvement of a priest in the project. And this is more important today than it was 50 years ago, uh, when you know, we had you know, five or 10 sisters in a school. Uh, they were an institutional presence of the church. Unfortunately, in most situations, that's not the case anymore. Uh, your own children were lucky to have had the wonderful Nashville Dominicans, I think, right? Uh, and, uh, but you know, that, most parishes don't have that. And so the presence of the priest, more, it's not simply a cultic presence. So, you know, we have a mass every Friday for the school kids and they see father at the mass. It's outside of the sacramental liturgical role, but that he's involved in the school, he's present there. Uh, and that's why we have that workshop. We also have recently instituted a society for priests and high school work. Uh, as you know, uh, Bishop Thomas Daly is now the Episcopal uh, Chairman of the Bishop's Committee on Catholic Education, uh, who's a wonderful, mm -hmm. wonderful Catholic educator. As a priest, he spent 19 years in high school work as a teacher and, and as an administrator. 
And uh, he's endorsed this project very strongly because very often um, there's only one priest in a high school if they even have that now. And, uh, and yet there's no, no apostolate that's more important for the presence of a priest than a Catholic high school. And again, yeah. that the priest is involved, uh, you know, if he can teach, that he teaches, yeah. but that he's a presence in the building, that he's available mm -hmm. for, for counseling, for confession, uh, at games, mm -hmm. at, uh, at uh, dances, and so forth. Uh, this is critically important, and that's, and that's where the vocations come from. I, I know from my own yeah. years of, of both teaching and administering Catholic schools, the vocations I got were precisely because I was involved in the daily uh, lives of, of these students. Right. Father Peter Stravinskis of the Catholic Education Foundation, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Raymond. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.